Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, it's, on, it's one of the, in one of those black pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 55. You can find it on page 55 in your black pew Bible. And we are going to be in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to chapter 13, verse 16. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 43. Listen to God's word. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat out of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the, stra- and, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first." To open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, and when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, 
for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Years ago, I had a meeting with several pastors, and we were sitting around, uh, pastors from different churches, we were sitting around, we were talking about our churches and what it was like, and one of them asked me, do you have any dramatic presentations in your church? And I knew what he meant. He was asking if I showed videos in my church or if I had any kind of drama, like some skit to come here to kind of illustrate the scriptures. And I couldn't resist and said, yes, we do. We have the drama of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I know it was a little bit of a snarky answer to him, but it's true. The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the dramatic presentations of the gospel. You could say they are the moving pictures that represent the spiritual realities of the gospel written and directed by Jesus himself. It is in these moments that we see the gospel enacted and our participation in it dramatized. And this morning we have an opportunity as a church together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You can see the elements right here in front of you. It's something we do the first Sunday of every month. But why do we do this? Why do we do this every month? And more importantly, who gets to participate in it? And there's this big statement on this table right in front of you. I don't know if you can see it. It says, in remembrance of me. And just what are we to remember exactly? The answer to these questions finds its root in our passage. Roots in our passage this morning in Exodus. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the events surrounding Passover and this 10th plague. And what we've seen is that the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is of such significance, of such important value, that God in his wisdom said, I'm going to surround it with memorials and ceremonies. It is to be marked out on your calendar all the time. It's to be on your hands and your mouth. It's to be on frontlets between your eyes that the people might never forget. Earlier in chapter 12, we saw Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this morning, our passage adds one more ritual in this constellation of, of, uh, of ceremonies, you could say. And it's the consecration of the firstborn. So there are three ceremonies to memorialize the Exodus. There's the Passover, there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there's the consecration of the firstborn. And all three ceremonies point forward to what we will participate here in this morning, which is the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion. These three ceremonies in Exodus illumine the rich depth of spiritual meaning concerning the Lord's Supper. Now, we remember that the last supper that Jesus had, you know, that famous painting where he's in the center and everyone's around him, that last supper was the Passover meal. And in that Passover celebration, in that Passover meal, Jesus gave new meaning to it. And we saw two weeks ago that 
Jesus was saying, I am the Passover lamb. I myself will be the ultimate final Passover lamb. And how the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks to our new life in Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do as we look at our passage is to provide three things we learn about the Lord's Supper from the Passover and these surrounding rituals. Three things we learn about the Lord's Supper and the Passover from these surrounding rituals. The first thing we see from the Passover, and by extension the Lord's Supper, is that it is a family meal. It is a family meal. Now look at verse 47, chapter 12, verse 47. It says, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. In other words, this is a meal for all of God's rescued people. All the people who experienced the same divine deliverance are to eat. Verse 46 says they are to eat together in one house. One lamb per household, as we saw earlier in chapter 12. Now, a couple weeks ago, somebody came up to me from the church and said, you know how much one lamb feeds? It's 50 pounds of meat that it should yield. Now think about it. That's a lot of meat, depending on the size of your household, I guess. But that's a lot of meat. But also in chapter 12, it says, if your family is small, what you're supposed to do with that lamb is invite your neighbors in. It's a shared meal. Because this is not a meal of isolated spirituality. That's why this meal is not done just between two people or at somebody's home or on a wedding or something like that. The prohibition here of not having any broken bones seems to speak to this. You aren't supposed to take your lamb and just kind of chop it up and divide it up and say, hey, you go socially distant, have your own meal in your own house. No, the idea here is you eat it together. It's a sign of unity. Now, certainly the unbroken bones confirm that Jesus is the lamb of our salvation. We, if you look into the New Testament, when Jesus is crucified, soldiers came up to break his legs to speed up his death upon the cross. But when, upon finding him dead already, they didn't do it. So Jesus' bones were left unbroken, assuring us that he is the unblemished and perfect sacrifice of our sin. But what I want us to see right now is that this is a family meal. This is a picture of warm fellowship. You know, there's something about sharing a meal together, isn't it? I mean, we just love doing it. And there's something about ordering a California burrito from Los Altos Taqueria, and, you know, you're like eating it by yourself, and that's okay. But there's something about inviting somebody to that, bringing chips together and salsa together and having it all together. It means something different. It's a sign of unity and friendship. It's why our church has a big kitchen in it. It's why we have a church lunch every month. It's why Sunday evening fellowship is a potluck. There's just something about food that speaks to family. And when you think about the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, sometimes the sacrifices were all burnt up for the Lord, but many of the sacrifices some was for the Lord and some was for the person making the sacrifice and leftovers to be shared with other people. Why? Because it's a, it's a family affair. And just think about how the Bible describes heaven. 
Heaven is a marriage supper of the Lamb. But here in Exodus, they gather together to eat this Passover meal, and it is a prototype of the Lord's Supper that is to come. It is a sign of fellowship and relationship. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. You see, in the United States, many Christians like to think of salvation in individual terms. Christians talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Or, or we talk about, this is what God has done for me. But the reality is that we believe in the communion of saints. Christianity is never me, my Bible, and my own personal mystical experience. It is the whole body of God coming together. It is why corporate embodied worship is so important. It is the essence of our Christianity that we worship God together, praising him together for the salvation that we share in Jesus. It is why a Christian who decides that it is not necessary to attend church is in real spiritual danger. Now, we're all different. We all didn't grow up the same way. Uh, You know, parents were raising our children in different ways. Uh, We do different things for fun, and some of us are maybe... You know, we would say, hey, I'm, I'm a complementarian, but maybe I'm thick and complementarian. Maybe I'm thin in my complementarian views. We see things different politically. We might view social justice differently. And yet, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we come together and in a few moments, we take of it one lamb, one household. Right now, our cultural moment is, is rife with what some have dubbed expressive individualism. Essentially, it's the idea that you do you. Let me, why don't you share your truth? Morality and ethics, replace those with personal preference. The meaning of life, replace it with the self-creation of identity. And its most extreme expressions are seen in transgenderism and modern identity politics. So I would say that there is nothing more countercultural than what we are about to do at this table. We are taking all our personalities, all our backgrounds, all our differences, and in this meal, we are declaring one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, a true and better identity politics. None of us come to the table on unequal terms. I mean, you can have your PhD or you can have your GED, you come to the table all the same. You can be 50 years old or you can be 15 years old. We come to the table. It is for all the household of God that partakes in this family meal. Second, Passover, and by extension, the Lord's Supper, is an exclusive meal. The question about who was eligible for the Passover is a question that came up almost immediately upon the Exodus. Because last week we saw what, in chapter 12, verse 28, we saw what? That there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. It wasn't just Israelites coming out of Egypt. There were Egypt, likely Egyptians, Cushites, other, other 
maybe perhaps people even from Canaan there. It was a mixed multitude. So the question is, who gets to participate in it? We see here that this meal is set apart. Now, we might call that sacred. And to call it sacred doesn't mean that there's some magical powers that are happening here. You take it and it's like a vitamin boost or something really magical will happen to you. But it's set apart, meaning not common. And the annual Passover meal is not a common meal. And contrary to the God of political correctness, God distinguishes the meal between those who are and those who are not his people. To put it bluntly, God discriminates. Passover was exclusive. It was for the people of God and not for outsiders. Foreigners and migrant workers were not allowed to keep the feast. And the reason was that they were not members of the covenant community. In other words, they were not believers. Commentator Phil Reichen says that this was not a matter of race, but of grace. These outsiders had not yet put their faith in the God of Israel, and thus it would be inappropriate for them to receive this particular means of grace. So you see in verse 43, that word foreigner there. In the Hebrew, it is the word nekar, meaning outsider. It is not the word goyim that we might be familiar, more familiar with, which means someone from another nation. It's foreigner, meaning someone who is outside of the covenant community. They could not partake of the Passover, nor a foreigner who is a temporary resident or a day laborer hired for a season. But a slave could, a servant could enjoy the Passover. Even the stranger, a resident alien in the land could join in as long as what? As long as they were circumcised. Circumcision indicated that you were a God-fearer. It indicated that you had worked out all the implications of obedience and that you understood what it would mean to follow after God. It was an outward indication of an inward belief. So Passover was class-free, race-free. It allows for all sorts of people to come in and at the same time is fundamentally exclusive. Now in the Torah, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are all sorts of rules and regulations for people, outsiders, who are joining in to, uh, with Israel. Uh, the sojourner enjoyed all these rights of assistance and protection. We can just think about that there's laws saying that we allow people to, to, to glean from the edges of the field. They could participate in, in the tithe. They could flee to cities of refuge. That was all allowed for the foreigner. But they could not participate in the Passover. And we would say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an act of the gathered family of those who believe in Jesus. It is not an act for unbelievers. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're happy for you to be present when we have the Lord's Supper. This is not some secret ritual. There's no magic arts happening here. Nothing secretive about it. We welcome you to all sorts of things in the church. We welcome you to sit in on everything in our church, to everything where, we, where, we, where we're preaching and teaching and all our different events. If there's any way we can assist you, any way we can help you, be a refuge for you, even to pray for you, we want this to be that place for you. But communion is a family meal. 
It is for those who confess their sins and have publicly professed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. It is for those who are currently in a good standing at another gospel preaching church or this gospel preaching church. You see, you don't participate in this meal because your, your wife is interested in the church. You don't pr- participate in this meal because maybe you've grown up in the church. This is a table for those who are willing to say, I follow Yahweh. I belong to him. I'm his child. And you don't get in because your mama did or your grandmama did. Or you're really trying your best. It's the idea in 1 Corinthians 11 that says, anyone who eats and drinks just eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So friend, while this table is exclusive, let me say that right now there is a seat left at the table for you. And you can enjoy it if you're willing to be a part of God's people. And please note that this is not a, an American table. This is not a, an Asian table. It is not an electrical engineering table. It is not a UCLA table. It is not for a table for the middle class, for the educated or the uneducated. It is a table for saved sinners. That's what it is. Are you willing to be a saved sinner? Are you willing to receive this meal? There are many spiritual benefits to attending church, but salvation is not one of them. Salvation requires more than rubbing elbows with Christians. For Israel, it demanded a total commitment, total personal commitment in the sign of circumcision. And what God required from you, what God requires from you, is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Faith in Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that you are a sinner? that you have fallen short of your own personal standards or even more the standards of God? We're all in this room in the same boat. But this is why God sent his son to die upon the cross, that Jesus would be the punishment for our sins. That you might be reconciled to God and so have a seat at the table. And if you would just stop living your way, And turn to the Lord and place your faith in him. Come and know the Lord. Repent, be baptized, make a public confession of faith in Jesus. And let's enjoy this meal together. Passover is a family meal. Passover is an exclusive meal. And third and finally, we see in the rest of chapter 13 that all of these, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn were for the purpose of remembrance. We saw this earlier in chapter 12, verse 14, where the Passover is a memorial. It says it's a memorial. It's a statute of remembrance. It's to be taught to the next generation. And we see this here again in chapter 13 with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is to be remembered, verse 3. It is a memorial between your eyes, verse 9, and it's taught to the next generation, verse 8. Again, for the consecration of the firstborn, beginning in verse 11, it's a mark on the hand and frontlets between your eyes. It's to be remembered. 
And again, it is to be taught to the next generation, it says in verse 14. So these three rituals were constant reminders. Constant reminders, something you put in front of your eyes and you can't see past it type of thing. Constant reminders. It's kind of like one of my daughters, she has bangs and sometimes we, she's just a wild child and we just forget to cut her hair and those bangs just kind of come in front of her eyes and she can't see past those bangs. That's the idea here. These meals and rituals were for remembrance. But what exactly were they to remember? In verses 3 through 10, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to remember that they were set apart. Now, we saw this two weeks ago in chapter 12, and here again it's reiterated, telling us how important it is. But I won't rehash everything that I said in the sermon I, the sermon I gave two weeks ago. You go, go ahead and just hop online, download it, listen to it again. Uh, But to summarize, unleavened bread was a symbol of a break with the past. The instruction to banish leaven from their houses and all the land was a gesture that symbolized leaving behind all of their Egyptian influences. They were saved to be sanctified. We are to make no room for even a smidgen of sin. Zero tolerance policy when it comes to sin and the old ways. And so certainly we would say that the Lord's Supper is not a meal for those who are living in open sin and determined not to give it up. But what is new in our passage this morning is this consecration of the firstborn. Now, have you ever thought about how much theology has been in these Passover accounts? I mean, if we just think about it, we just think substitutionary atonement. When we think about the Passover and how God's people are saved by the blood of a lamb offered in their place. Or we think about propitiation and the turning away of God's wrath. Or we think about adoption and being, uh, having a mixed multitude being brought into God's family or certainly sanctification, living set apart holy lives. The Passover account is almost a complete theological education. And there's one more pillar that is being added through this consecration of the firstborn. And it is this concept of redemption. Redemption. That was what Israel was to remember. Not only that they were set apart, but that they were redeemed by God. Now, redemption means to purchase or to buy back. And here you can immediately see the connection with the Passover event. In Egypt, as Yahweh passed over the firstborn during the 10th plague, now the Hebrews are to pass over their firstborn to God. They belong to God. See, God had purchased them in Egypt. Now, everything belongs to the Lord. Now, the firstborn were important in the ancient world as they are in cultures today. The eldest had special responsibilities, special privileges, uh, the right of inheritance, but... God is not showing favoritism. He's saying the firstborn is representative of kind of the whole family. And the kind of way the, um, the team captain represents the whole team at the beginning of a game. And the same principle was applied when the Israelites brought their first fruits from the, from the fruit of harvest, from the feast of harvest. They offered their first and their best to show that the whole harvest belongs to God. Now the Israelites are commanded to give their offspring to the Lord. Set them apart. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, in the case of animals, this meant offering the firstborn as a sacrifice. Uh, The instructions are given in Numbers 18, where if you have a lamb or you have a goat or a bull, they are to be offered in sacrifice to the Lord. An exception to this rule when it comes to animals is if you had an animal like a donkey. In cases where the animal is ceremonially unclean, like a donkey, unacceptable for sacrifice, you would offer a lamb in its place. And if not, you break its neck and kill it. In other words, all of it belongs to the Lord. So if you, if you, you can't simply keep the animal just for yourself by your own decision. It's, if it's not redeemed, it must be destroyed. Now, there are five other times in the Pentateuch, twice in Exodus, then in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we have further instructions about this law regarding the firstborn. And it's kind of complicated how it all fits together. But the basic idea here is this. The firstborn is the Lord's. Clean animals, you sacrifice. Unclean animals, you have to have a substitute, something in their place. And I find it kind of interesting that human beings are placed in the same category as a donkey. They need a substitute. They need a purchase price. Numbers 18 tells us that the redemption price for the firstborn is five shekels of silver. The point here, again, is that Israel belongs to God because he redeemed them. God says, you are mine. You are my special possession. I lay claim over your lives. I own you. Israel was never to forget who they were and whose they were. They belong to God. They are not their own. And that's true for the sons of what was true for the sons of Israel is true for those who are in Christ. First Corinthians 619 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. First Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Church, God has purchased you, redeemed you. We just sung about that. For I am his and he is mine. What? Bought with the precious blood of Christ, right? Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, it says in Colossians. Jesus, who is the firstborn of the dead, it says in Revelation. God offered up his firstborn son, not to be redeemed, but to be the redeemer. Romans 8.32 says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And now it says in Hebrews 12.23 that we are the church of what? Hebrews 12.23 calls us the church of the firstborn. That's who we are. By virtue of our union with Jesus. When we come to the Lord's table, it is a remembrance of Christ the firstborn who was not protected that we might be made safe. It is a time we remember whose we are and that everything belongs to him. Even the things that we might hold to be most precious. I hope you can see for those of you who are parents that our lovely children aren't ours. They don't belong to us. I mean, they do in a sense. We love them. We care for them. We have them for a time. But far more precious than any earthly achievement that we can help them in 
is that they would belong to the Lord. And there are all sorts of things that we treat like a firstborn. We might treat our car like a firstborn or our job like a firstborn, a relationship like a firstborn. But it's whatever you place your value in that you love and invest in. And God says, all that is mine because you are mine. We are profoundly forgetful. We forget God's promises, character, and what he has done for us in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to us because it's a needed reminder for us. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we do so in remembrance of Christ. The cost he paid to purchase us and redeem us. And we do so remembering who we belong to. And we take at this table, we come together in sweet communion and fellowship with Christ and with one another. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for we are saved in Christ alone by the blood of Christ alone. And Father, as we even now are preparing our hearts for this communion meal, we pray that it would mean fellowship with you and with one another. We pray that we would take it in a holy manner, in a set-apart manner. And we pray that we would take it with great joy and celebration because of what Christ has done. And may we proclaim the truth about Christ by taking this together, the reality of the gospel. May we teach our children about what this sign means, that you might receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we looked at the word.